Our scripture reading today is from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It's on page 1002 in your red book, Pew Bibles. Before we read this, we'll go to our Heavenly Father with prayer to illuminate our hearts so that we can receive these words with grace. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we approach your throne this morning asking you to fill our hearts with the knowledge of your will and with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray this in order that we might live a life worthy of you, Father, and may please you in every way and bear fruit in every good work to become what you would have us to become. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Do this before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like shave, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, those who do his just commandments. Seek righteousness, seek humility. And then perhaps you would be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The New Testament reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full in accord with the same emotion. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you Look not to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Having this in mind in yourselves, which is also available in you in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name 
that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. It's great to be home in Amarillo. Sharon and I had a great time doing the marriage seminar Friday night and Saturday. Uh, it's, it's a tremendous blessing to see so many of you there. And I have to just tell you that Sharon and I, in our seven years out in California, that woman is doing good work. She's really after it. She, she does amazing things. At, as director of the Boone Center for the Family at Pepperdine University. She's an affiliate faculty member at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, students love her, respond to her, and she is really making a, a wide swath for the kingdom of God in her work in California. Uh, if California... We're only in Amarillo, we'd probably be okay. <laughs> but but we'll, we'll suffer through it just a little bit longer. Well, the telos, or the purpose of marriage, that's the name of the sermon today. Uh, and um, I just want to spend a little time talking to you about what I, what's on my heart in terms of the purpose of marriage. I think many times we come to the idea of the purpose of marriage and we get a little bit confused. We think, well, the purpose of marriage, what the world would say is the purpose of marriage is to make us happy. And uh, most people get married and find out they're not so happy right off the bat. Uh, that while that person really seemed to turn your screw at a certain point in time, now they turn another screw that tends to get you angry or upset or they expect you to change. And so many people just cannot deal with that kind of framework. And they say, this is not making me happy. I know that God would not have me unhappy, so therefore I should check out of my marriage. Uh, many Christians will come to you and say, well, the purpose of marriage is so you won't be alone. And many people who marry, even Christians, find out, gee, I wish I could find some time by myself. I wish I could be alone. I would rather be alone, the famous actress said. Then we start reaching into utilitarian-type definitions of marriage saying, well, you know, if we just look at marriage as a social contract that we shake hands and we come out fighting and this is what we have to do in order to be fruitful and multiply and, and subdue the earth and that's our job and we have to put up with it. We, it may be miserable, but we'll keep doing it anyway. Well, those answers are simply insufficient. I, I want to come to tell you today that I think the purpose of marriage is to drive you deep. It's the purpose of everything. Not only the, the purpose of marriage, but the purpose of everything is to drive you deep into yourself. 
to recognize that by yourself you cannot make it. That only, your only hope is through binding yourself to something larger than who you are. Binding yourself to the king of the universe who loved you and gave himself up for you. And as a result, you become a part of that universe of the king of kings that you will enjoy and glorify him forever, with him forever. The purpose of marriage is to drive me toward that. That seems like a big load to take on at the very beginning. But I want to tell you that I think the secret of this is found in the, in the Philippians passage. It's found also in the Ephesians passage. It's also found in the Colossians passage. It's also found in First and Second Thessalonians. It's also found in Galatians. It's found in every single thing that Paul writes. It's found in every, all four of the Gospels as Jesus tells us what it takes to be bound heart and soul to him. And in this passage, you find Paul recounting it to us once again. He, he starts out by saying, he says, listen to me. If you, if you find anything in Christ, if you find any comfort from any love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then this is what you need to do. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind with one another. What he's talking about is is that you join with one another and you be part of the whole. My friends, that's exactly what he's telling us in Ephesians 5 when he's telling directions to wives. He's telling directions to husbands on how to love and submit to one another for the express purpose of becoming one flesh. A man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one. This is not far off, of course, from what Paul is explaining to us. He's saying after that statement, this mystery is profound. It's hard to understand how two become one. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's what he says. He's saying, in other words, that's what it takes for you to join yourself with Christ and Christ becoming one with the church so that he can institute his kingdom. Well, how do we do that? Paul is very, very practical about this. He, he makes no bones about it. He says, if you're going to be of one mind, he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count the others more significant than yourselves. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let none of you Look out for your own need, but look out for the needs of others. Humility. Not a very popular word in our individual-driven society. 
individuality, I think, uh, in our particular framework in the Western culture has maybe reached its pinnacle. We believe that individuality is the most important thing. It's only important what I want. It's only important what my goals are. It's only important what my happiness says. Paul is totally rejecting this in the form of humility. Lord Jonathan Sachs made a speech recently to, to the Vatican Council on Marriage in which he was making the point that individuality has led us down the path where we have come close to totally losing the blessing of the idea of marriage on how two people come together and sacrifice, not so much for one another, but sacrifice for the sake of their relationship and their family. Individuality has driven us away from this. Individuality says whatever you want is supreme. Therefore, do not take into consideration what others want or what is good for society or what is good for your family or what is even good for the person that you're supposed to be closest to. Take only in consideration what is good for you. Nobody has your back but you. And he makes the point that this has led us into a precarious situation where we only satiate our own desires. We only are concerned about our own purpose in life, which is to satisfy ourselves. Therefore, he says... Things happen in a cascading way. We start talking to ourselves into ideas that say sex has nothing to do with love. We can have as much sex as we want with as many people as we want. After all, it's just a physical act. It's just something to satisfy ourselves. Love quickly becomes then unraveled from something we call covenant and monogamy. We start saying, I can love one person, two people, three people, four people. It doesn't really matter. And then the idea of monogamy and commitment becomes unraveled from the idea of marriage. What's the purpose of marriage after all? If love really isn't connected to it, I will stay with you only as long as I love you or I care for you. But after it does not meet my needs anymore, I will go on to my next serial relationship. Love becomes separated from sex. Sex becomes separated from covenant, commitment, commitment, Covenant becomes separated from marriage. If you take the next step, marriage becomes separated from parenting and child-rearing. And when you cut marriage loose from parenting and child-rearing, the next step is, is that children begin to feel like there's no responsibility for the other because they're just surviving themselves. Marriage is perhaps the greatest blessing since creation. 
we need to hold on to it for a specific reason. But more importantly than that, if we're going to make marriage work, it's not just doing a death march with your spouse. It's really finding the joy of becoming one with another person. There are three things that I want to suggest that we have to do if we're going to become one with another person. The first is that we really have to commit ourselves to reckoning with ourselves. We have to do a right reckoning with ourselves. This is part one of that point. Part one of the point of that we have to reckon with ourselves, I want to go to the passage in Galatians that you're familiar with. He says, brothers, if if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone is thinking he is something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have his own load to bear. I think Paul really hits us in the middle of this, doesn't he? He says, you know, we're to bear one another's burdens, we're to care for one another, But sometimes our caring for one another reaches over where we start looking at the other and saying, you know, I look pretty good compared to that person. I think the number one thing that we realize when we're counseling and doing therapy with spouses is how much they point to one another and say, the real problem is him. The real problem is her. If you could just stop her from being so controlling, if you, should, if you could just get him to stop being so passive, if you could just stop her from drinking, if you could just stop him from getting so angry, then I would be okay. And we anesthetize ourselves to what is real about ourselves. Paul says, you know, reckon with yourself rightly, part one. Take stock of yourself. Take stock of yourself. Realize, if you're thinking that you're something when you're actually nothing, you're actually wrong. Each of you must have an account of yourselves. What is the thing that makes you tick? Is it it really love and nurturing others, or is it protecting yourself from ever having to take a risk? Is it coming up with a position that tells you that you're okay and you're superior to someone else's political view, economic condition, the way that they love, the way that they want to be loved? Or do you suffer with some of the same issues around wanting to be loved and you've used divisive means to make that happen. You know, someone who drinks too much, who shames themselves too much, who has too much anger or is too controlling, really at the heart of it is just experiencing that painful place of feeling unloved and unsafe, just the same as the rest of us. 
If you think you've overcome that, then you're thinking of yourself as something when you actually are nothing. We're all dependent upon one another. We all desire to be loved and nurtured in a certain way. If you're going to get to humility and the purpose of what God intends in marriage, you better first of all reckon with yourself. The second point is you need to reckon with yourself rightly. Part two. Part two means that you are not just nothing because Christ wants to make you something different. He comes to us. He comes to us in this great passage in John 15 where he's telling us, let me tell you what I really, really desire for all of you. He says to us, He says, this is my command. This is the passage, by the way, where he tells us, I am the vine and you are the branches. You can do, apart from me, you can do nothing. I am in you and what? You are in me. He's telling us that you are one with one another. It's not, he's not giving this message of just saying, I am in you I'm setting my spirit in in you, and that's your conscience. He's also saying, I am in you, and you guys, all you folks at First Presbyterian, you are in me, meaning you claim my ministry, my personhood, where I live and literally die. And this is what he says to us. He says, greater, has no, greater love has no man than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you to do. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. We're not nothing, we really are something when we count ourselves one with Christ. We have a great position of great privilege. We are precious to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He has gone to great lengths to claim us, to love us. Greater greater love has no one that he lays down his life for his friends. First John puts it this way. He says, we know love because he first loved us all the love that we have is a result of God the Father if you're going to be humble you need to reckon with yourself rightly not thinking of yourself as something when you're actually nothing if you're going to get to humility you need to reckon with yourself rightly realizing that you are very precious in God's eyes, and that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit wanted you as part of the plan, embraced fully in the plan. And then there's a third point, which is faith and faithfulness, which is really what the last part of the passage in Philippians is about, He points us toward, he says, if you you want to know what this humility of really counting your interests secondary to the interest of others is like, 
He says we need to look no further than the message of Jesus Christ. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But he didn't stop there. You see, God is saying to us, he says, if you want to know what it's like to be humble, put yourself in the place of the servant, just like Christ did. He didn't count himself based on his status, his economic status, his political beliefs, his beliefs of what should be done. He didn't use power, the power to get things done anywhere in relationships in the community or even in this church. It's the power to put yourself in a servanthood to say that I am a lover first, foremost, of the people of God, pushing their interests above my own, counting them more important myself, not counting my position, but counting my love as the most important thing. And that means... By nature of being a servant, you take the hit. You take the bullet for people. And what example do we have? Jesus, who while he was God, became a person like you and me and came obedient even to the point of death, bearing that which was wrong with us in his own self, even to the point of taking the punishment. For our shortcomings on himself, when he did nothing, when he did not have any sin, he took on sin and became sin for us. What does that mean? It means that surely I can do the dishes or go to the grocery store, or stay up late and talk to my wife, or she can go to a game with me and camp out on the couch and eat potato chips, or we can together take a bag of groceries to a needy family, or reach out to a hurting couple that is worse off than we are and say, let's walk together. Surely it means that I can carry around the shortcomings of someone else, even my spouse, because I have not suffered to the point of death, even death on the cross. Surely I can move myself over enough to be humble enough. But the good thing about this is that when I practice that kind of humility of pushing my interest behind the interest of someone else in an active way, I learn what it's like not only to be married and successfully married at that, I learn what it's like to be part of the community of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 
and I come to this final place where God says, therefore, Christ, highly exalted. Christ was highly exalted, and it was bestowed on him the name above all names. At the sound of that name, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I would submit to you that if you're willing to be submitting to Jesus Christ as a follower, then it makes sense that if you're going to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you should be willing to love your neighbor as yourself, which means practically, if you're submitting to Jesus Christ, it's time to learn the purpose of marriage. Marriage is nothing more, nothing less than the training ground, the incubator, to teach you how to submit to someone else. Let us pray. Father God, you have given us much through your love and your guidance, through your sacrifice of your son, you have given us much. But you also call us to a high calling. You call us to a high calling of being one with one another and putting others in the place of preference. You call us to be servants along with you. Help us to be faithful to that purpose of marriage and the purpose of everything, to be humble and servants to the point of graciously calling you Lord. For it's in your Son's name. Amen. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. Um, well, uh,